So if canning is food preservation 101, then I would say the topic of curing meats or preserving meats would probably be like a 102 or a 103 class. There's a lot of trepidation around preserving meats and curing especially. You know, I've dabbled with this over the years in various ways. I've made bacons and I've made some pretty good hams. I've had some success. I've had some pretty epic failures, embarrassing failures, which I will talk about here later on in the episode. But uh, I'm by no means a meat preservation expert, but it's definitely something I would like to become more proficient at, even though we do have a giant walk-in freezer and, um, you know, we, we keep a lot of our meat frozen. I'm always curious, what would we do if we didn't have a freezer? How would we keep our meat from going bad? And there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. And we're going to cover all of them in this episode. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It was extremely enlightening to me. And if you have been nervous or cautious, or maybe just curious about how you can preserve meats in a variety of ways, you're going to love it. So I am very privileged to be joined by Derek Smiley today here on the podcast. He has decades of hands-on experience curing meats, making charcuterie and beef jerky, among other things. He has taught classes on meat preservation while running a homestead of his own for 25 years. I am thrilled to have him on the podcast today to walk us through the ins and outs of meat preservation. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, best-selling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 10 years, I've helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. Hey, Derek, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, so um, when we were conceptualizing this topic for this uh, upcoming season, or I guess it's not upcoming now, it's, we're in the season of food preservation. Um, one of the things that I knew I really wanted to address with an expert uh, is this idea of preserving meats because it's something I've dabbled with, uh, but it's just not, I don't, I don't think it's addressed uh, well in the homestead community as much as I would like to see it. It just kind of gets pushed to the side a lot. So um, I'm excited to have your, your voice here of expertise to enlighten us today. Well, you bet. It's great to be here. And I appreciate all that you do for the homesteading community. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of different ways for meat preservation. You know, the basic, the one that we all do is freezing meat. And that's a simple, easy way to do it. And of course, uh, if we're vacuum packing our, uh, our meats and, you know, possibly having a freezer alarm in case there's a disaster, you know, it's a slick way to go. Um, canning, of course, I know you're a canner. And canning meats is an excellent way to go. And that's a meal ready to eat. Yeah, you don't even need to heat it up. You can spoon it out and enjoy it if you didn't have power or means to heat your food. So it's kind of like you have the first layer of freezing. The second layer is uh, canning your meats. And then there's something fairly new, fairly new, and that's freeze drying. Are you familiar with that at all? I am. We actually had the opportunity to try out a home freeze dryer a couple years ago. 
and played okay. with it. It was definitely different. I mean, it was cool, but I, it was a yeah. learning curve. Yeah. It is a learning curve. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's, you know, the machine itself is not uh, inexpensive, but when we were on our homestead, we we're homesteading for 25 years, it made sense for us to get a freeze dryer because we were producing 200 chickens a year and, and our pigs and uh, the huge gardens. So freeze drying meat is a pretty slick way to uh, long-term uh, uh, preserve your food. There's a bit of a caveat though, freeze drying does not work with fatty meats. So if you've got this wonderful, a wonderful pork shoulder, it's not gonna work out because fat does not freeze dry. But if you have lean meats, such as chicken breast, you know, boneless, skinless, um, 90, 10 hamburger, that kind of thing, it'll last 25 years if you store it properly. So that's huge, that's a game changer. And I think for most of us homesteaders, we have a pretty sizable pantry uh, we lived out in the country. We were uh, at the whim of Mother Nature, as you, I'm sure you are, uh, power outages and whatnot. So it's always a smart idea to have uh, food set away in your pantry. And I think we all experienced the need during the whole COVID pandemic where you went to the grocery store to find uh, some chicken and you couldn't get it or it was in such limited quantities. So the freeze dryer offers that next layer of preservation. And that's going to be your long-term storage food, not your day-to-day kind of food. Now, with the freeze-drying, just just to go off on a little rabbit trail here for just a sec, how did you find that you guys like to to reconstitute or to take that freeze-dried meat and then turn it into a meal? Because I played around with it very sparingly, but not enough to have like a lot of opinion. So I'm curious what your favorite way to do that entails. Yeah, so with meats, it's ideal to uh, rehydrate it into a, a, a liquid base, you know, a stew or a soup, add all your vegetables, uh, pasta or whatever it might be, rice and your seasonings, and you've got a fabulous meal in just a short amount of time. Uh, the neat thing about meat is that you can't over rehydrate. You know, you're removing all of the moisture out. And if it was a vegetable, you could actually put too much liquid back in and that veggie could become like soft and really gushy, but meat doesn't do that. So you could literally freeze dry, uh, excuse me, a hamburger patty, uh, put it in a pan of water and have that sit overnight and it's just gonna be fine. But I find that with rehydrating, like we do a lot of chicken, for instance, I can rehydrate that a couple hours before I cook and I'll make tacos out of it or put it in soup, whatever you might have. And it works out really slick. Interesting. Are you primarily freeze drying like raw meats or or pre-cooked meats? I go ahead and uh, do pre-cooked typically. Once in a while, I'll do some raw meats. But normally I want something that if I need to create something fairly quickly, I, I just need to add hot water and give it enough time to rehydrate. So it works out nice. So homemade convenience food, which is always nice because sometimes yeah, you exactly. always have a lot of time to make those meals, even though homesteaders were, you know, people like, Oh, you guys cook all day. I'm like, well, some days we don't have time to cook all day. So we exactly. need fast food. Let's yeah. See. yeah the, the sheep got out today. No, we're not cooking much. So exactly. yeah, I totally get it. Yeah. And of course that's the beauty too, of having other canned foods. You might uh, pre-can some beef stew. Uh, so again, you've got that meal ready to eat. You can heat it up very quickly. 
and everybody's happy with a healthy home cooked meal. It's just been canned. Yeah, I love that. Um, okay, so we have we have freezing, we have freeze drying, we have canning. What else do we have? Next up is dehydrating, and that's something that everybody can do. It's something very simple. You can, if you have a, a, an oven that will have a low enough temperature set point, like 160, 170 degrees, you can do it in your oven. Otherwise, uh, I hope a lot of people have dehydrators. Uh, I have an Excalibur dehydrator that I've used for many, many years. It works just fantastic. And so dehydration is a process in which you're removing moisture from a meat or a veggie or fruit. And it's important to note that moisture, uh, well, bacteria cannot grow without moisture. So that's how we're preserving the food, by just removing that moisture. The bacteria won't grow. And, you know, most commonly when we're talking about meats, we think about jerky, you know, beef jerky, for instance. And it's nice to be be able to make your own meat, uh, uh, beef jerky, for instance, because you're in control of the ingredients. You don't look at the back of the store-bought package and go, why do I have red dye number two, right? Or MSG or whatever it might be. So you're in control of that. You know, it's a very simple process. You take a lean meat. Again, this kind of applies. We're going we're to keep talking about lean meats. Uh, you take a lean meat that doesn't have uh, much fat. You trim off the fat and you'll pre-freeze that meat just for maybe an hour or so. So it's kind of firm. Then you'll slice it across the grain, uh, maybe quarter inch thick, and then put that sliced meat into a, a baggie, a Ziploc baggie. And you want to have uh, a liquid like a salt, so something like soy sauce or teriyaki sauce. But then you also want an acid that is going to help break down that meat and tenderize it a little bit. So you can use red wine vinegar, a little bit of uh, lemon juice, uh, wine even. So something like that. And then you're going to add some seasonings in there. I like garlic and ginger, uh, a little bit of pepper, some red pepper flakes to give it some pizzazz. And I'll let all that concoction marinate with meat for 24 hours and then drain off the liquids, pat the meat dry, put it onto my dryer trays for my Excalibur so that the meat's not touching each other. And I will dehydrate that at 155 degrees for anywhere between four and eight hours. That's a big range. It's like, well, can't, can't we pin that down a little bit closer? But the problem is meat's a little bit different depending upon cut and package. And then like I live in a very dry climate. I think you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we're talking to our friends in Georgia, uh, it's going to take eight to 10 hours maybe as opposed to my four to six hours. So Basically, the way you tell when the meat is dehydrated is remove a piece from the dehydrator, let it come to room temperature, and then uh, check the pliability of it. It shouldn't be all floppy. It should be rigid. Uh, If it snaps like a potato chip, you've gone a little too far. It's not going to harm the product at the end. It's just, and in fact, it'll even last longer because you've reduced more uh, moisture from the product. But uh, it's not going to be as fun to chew. <laughs> right. Been there. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. The jaws start to get sore. Yeah. Can, so can you speak a moment to uh, the differences and considerations with like a, a whole muscle jerky versus a ground meat 
jerky because I haven't done the whole muscle yet. I've been playing, I have a jerky gun. So I was playing around with some ground beef, like lean ground beef um, jerkies. Mm -hmm. And some of the books that I was reading, I'm I'm kicking myself. I'm trying to remember the detail because I had a question when I was researching, like some of them are requiring like a curing salt. Some of them are not. And I was trying to sort out like what the standard recommendations are. Do you have any light you can shed on that topic? Well, minimally, uh, I've never done, I don't have a jerky gun, so I've never done the ground beef jerky. I've always used the whole muscle. So uh, all I can do is really speak to the whole muscle, uh, which would be like a London broil, which is a top round or an eye of round roast. Uh, sometimes you can get a lean flank roast, uh, some top sirloin, but uh, you don't need pink salts or curing salts for those. I wouldn't think you'd need curing salt for burger because again, you're drying it out. And as long as it's lean, it should dehydrate quite well. But when we get into some of the other techniques in meat preservation, then we're going to start talking about curing salts and fun things like bacon. Right, exactly. And I, I can't wait to talk about that because I have, I have good, good questions for that one. Good. I have good <laughs> answers. Yes, awesome. So the that's what I was thinking because I know when we have, uh, not to jump ahead too far, but when we have meats in a anaerobic environment, right? That's when we have the chance of botulism occurring. Yep. And that's why I was thinking, you know, I have the ground meat in my refrigerator because you let it sit with the spices for like 24 hours before you put it in your sure. dehydrator. I'm like, I'm thinking that doesn't seem like it would be in the danger zone, but I was also like, I need to, I need to research it more before. Cause most of the ground meat recipes are, are calling for a nitrate or nitrite. And I was, okay. I was like trying to sort through that. It might've been an excess of caution on the recipe writers part. Yeah, it could be. So yeah, they, they're probably uh, calling for a curing salt with Craig powder number one, which is something that you're using with the curing within less than 30 days. Um, so it would, uh, it would color the meat just a little bit, which isn't a bad thing. And I know because of the nature of the product, you want to be very, uh, very careful about measuring uh, the exact quantity. So you're not getting too little or you're not overdosing yourself and having some uh, negative reactions to that. Definitely. Yeah. So is there any other meats that you like to dehydrate beyond the jerkies? Um, I, I prefer jerkies myself. I know people do uh, fish, for instance, salmon, and uh, that works just fine. So. Uh, but for me, I stick to beef-based jerks. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what would you say to someone, because I kind of have an idea, but for someone who's asking, what's the difference between a dehydrator and what you can do with that with your meats versus a freeze dryer and what you can do with that? Oh, yeah, great. Well, uh, the freeze dryer removes virtually all of the moisture from the product. Um, and it retains 100% of the nutrients, which is fantastic. So when we compare, I know we're talking about the dehydrator, but when we compare, uh, say, pressure canning or even water bath canning, we're losing quite a bit of nutrients along the way. So the freeze dryer retains all of those nutrients. And with a dehydrated product, such as uh, jerky, even though it's shelf-stable for a while, there's still moisture in there. So some people will say it's good forever. It isn't. <laughs> it really isn't. Uh, I've seen uh, jerky that we've made that over a period of maybe three or four months, it's like, that's mold. So yeah. uh, where if it's freeze dried and it's done correctly and stored properly, again, it's going to last 25 years, maybe even longer. But uh, so that's the, the number one big difference, uh, the shelf stability. 
Okay. Yes. And I have wondered that about dehydrated foods beyond even just meat. Some, you know, people will be like, it'll last forever and ever. I'm like, eh, I don't know. It feels, feels iffy. Just like you said, the things I've dehydrated and washed, I'm like, it doesn't feel like it, it lasts as long as maybe people would assume. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, uh, we were dehydrating a lot of tomatoes, zucchini, uh, that kind of stuff, you know, a lot of garden items. And yeah, you want to make sure it's dry, like brittle dry. And uh, then we would uh, either vacuum pack or we'd put in mason jars with an oxygen absorber and then store it in a cool, dark place. So we've always had a, a pantry that we maintain 72 degrees uh, year round. And that just prevents temper temperature fluctuations and that could prevent condensation buildup if you have a really cold pantry, but the product is warm and then you get moisture inside the jar, you have a problem. So it just rehydrates the jar. Yeah. So my wife is a clinical herbalist. And so we would use the use a dehydrator for some of her herbs for practice. And uh, again, it worked out great as long as you made sure that it was really dry. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I've, I've interrupted your list several times now. So <laughs> what's our next oh, one no on worries. our list? <laughs> Rabbit holes are good. You know, are good. Yeah, so dry curing is the next uh, thing. And that's a fun topic. So we go back to dry curing and the French, they call it charcuterie. So you're going to get a, a meat preservation process that's using uh, sodium nitrate. You have Craig powders and curing salts. And People are going, okay, well, what is a dry cured product? Uh, think salami, a hard salami or dry salami. And then there's a bunch of other things that go underneath that, virtually hundreds of other products. We're familiar with pepperoni. And in fact, let's stop with salami and pepperoni. If you go to the grocery store, more often than not, you'll see those products in the refrigerator case. But oftentimes you'll see them on an end cap just sitting there. And you're going, well, the meat's sitting out. How does that happen? It's because it's been cured. So uh, other items that are dry cured and they're really good, Soprasada, you know, Chiona, Copa, Bresaola, uh, Lonzino. So those are, we range from salami-like products to whole muscle-type products. You know, pancetta, Copa, uh, just good stuff, really good stuff. Yes. And it's, it's not terribly difficult to do. Uh, you have to follow the rules of the road because you are, uh, you can create botulism if you don't do it right, just like canning. So uh, you don't color outside of the lines and go, oh, this is close enough. No, you, you get your scale out, you're measuring in grams to ensure you're getting the proper salt, uh, sugars, uh, uh, curing salts uh, to make sure that you prevent any problem. And the, the way dry curing works is that you have uh, let's talk about salami. We're all familiar with that. So you have a coarse ground pork and pork fat, and you're mixing that with seasonings, uh, a product called Bactoferm, which is uh, something that helps to take uh, sugars out and convert that into an acid. So when we acidify any kind of a, a, a meat, for instance, that is part of creating a shelf-stable product. And we're also adding salt 
to the salami. If you think about salamis and pepperonis, they're, they're fairly salty. The salt acts as a way to wick moisture away from, uh, say, a salami. And so over a period of uh, weeks or even months, depending upon what you're doing and the, and the diameter of the uh, salami that you're doing, you'll lose, you're looking to lose between 33 and 40% of the moisture content. So if you start with something that is um, 1,000 grams and you're going to end up with, say, 600 grams and you know it's completely cured and dry. And so now you have this product that is shelf-stable. Uh, you don't need refrigeration and it's really delicious. And so you said Bactoferm is, is the product you would add. And I've yes. seen, um, I know in some reading I've done, I've seen some of these recipes call for thing, for ingredients like that. So is that, it's, it's fermented, right? You're basically, it's a fermentation yes. process. Is it, is it yeah, similar exactly to, right. to lacto-fermentation and that in lacto-fermentation, we're taking the sugars and turning them into lactic acid? Or is this like a different action? Well, it's very, it's actually very similar. We are converting, converting sugars to acid. Okay. So um, it, it's easy to do. It's uh, it's a simple process. And there is a company that makes a, uh, what they call it a dry bag. What it is, this is from a company called Umai Dry, U-M-A-I. And they make these bags that you stuff your uh, salami fixings into this bag. Kind of like if you're doing hog casings or something like that, but this is a plastic-like material. And it will allow moisture to evaporate out but it doesn't let you know, liquids or it doesn't let air back in. So you uh, stuff these casings and you put it into your, uh, the salami, let's say into your refrigerator uh, after 24 hours of curing, uh, then you just keep track of the temperature. You're putting the, the salami on a rack. So it has air circulation inside your refrigerator and uh you know, again, after a month to three months, you've got a finished product that's fantastic. So people can get into uh, curing meats in this way, dry curing, relatively inexpensively. You're not having to buy that expensive curing chamber. You can use yeah. your own refrigerator. Get your feet wet and see if this is something that you actually enjoy. And that's been the biggest holdings back for me in doing the, the sausages is, you know, they're always like, well, stick it in your root cellar. Or, and I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't have a root cellar. I have a place to stick my jars of food, but I also need a cheese cave, but I don't think they, the meat and the cheese can be exact. I'm just like, there's, I need three right. different root cellars for all of these things. Yes, too much. So like, oh, too much. Yeah. 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 But I like, yeah, the so idea I would, of having, you know, in your refrigerator in the special bag. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of us, homesteaders we have we have multiple freezers and you know a refrigerator here and there so uh we have a refrigerator that i use exclusively for uh brining and curing and that sort of thing and it works out really slick so i can have multiple racks of salamis going on at one time and i can still do a wet curing in the same fridge which isn't going to create any contamination issues. So I can still have a bunch of bacon going at the same time I'm doing some, some fun charcuterie. Yeah. Um, and is there any particular type of sausage or salami that would be a, a good one for a beginner, like maybe less time for the cure or less ingredients? Is there any, are they all pretty similar in terms of the process? They're all similar. Uh, these, so when you buy a casing from Umai Dry, 
uh, they're going to give you three different sizes. Um, I want to say they're 30, 50, and 70 millimeter. And so I go with the middle sized casing, which I believe is a 50 millimeter. And so that I'm getting, I'm getting my uh, salamis done in about four weeks. So it's not bad. And you could probably get it done in two to three weeks if you're using the smallest case. Okay. So the, the girth of the salami is going to, yes. going to play a part in how long it has to sit. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. The, the greater the density, the slower it's going to take or longer it's going to take to uh, get down to that magic dehydration or uh, moisture evaporation level. Yes. That makes sense. Okay. Cause that's, that's our yeah. ballpark. Like you said, so 33 to 40%, you were looking for that. When the, the moisture is going down at the proper rate, that's when we're knowing we're in, like, it's keeping things safe. It's doing what it's supposed to do. And yep. the action is happening. Okay. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Redmond's Real Salt, the number one salt I use in all of my homestead cooking, canning, and fermentation. I've learned over the years that not all salt is created equal, and having the good stuff really does make a difference in your culinary adventures, especially when it comes to canning or fermentation. If you use the general run-of-the-mill grocery store salt with its iodine and its sugars and its additives, it can cause your canned or fermented foods to have off flavors, textures, and colorations. So it really does make a difference to get the good stuff. Redmond's is the only salt mine in the good old US of A, and I love that they use sustainable practices in their mining, and it contains 60 plus trace minerals that not only make it good for you, but it actually tastes better too. Since I can't mine salt here on our homestead, obviously, I like to buy salt in bulk because that saves me some cash and it never goes bad. I actually bought a 25 pound bag of Redmond's salt last summer, and I'm still using it. I just keep it in a bucket down in my basement pantry and it's still going strong. Right now, Redmond's is offering 15% off your entire order just for my podcast listeners. Head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash salt and use the code homestead to snag your discount. Now back to our episode. So what about, I don't, you can also dry cure the bacon, right? And, and can you, what about dry curing things like hams? What does that look like? Uh, what does that look like? You can dry cure hams and that's kind of in the, in the form of salt curing. So if you, I don't, I don't know if you, excuse me, I don't know if you've ever had a, a Virginia ham. They're packed in salt for about a month and they're hung in the, uh, uh, the cold house from September to March. And then they rinse off the salt and uh, get it smoked. And it's a really salty ham. Uh, for me, it's, I, I don't care for it. Sorry, folks in Virginia. But we didn't grow up with that. So it's very different. But it is a form of uh, dry curing that uh, works. Uh, you can dry cure salmon, for instance. Um, so there's a number of things that you can dry cure. And we talked about bacon and i i've done dry curing bacon but i i prefer going to a wet cure and basically that goes with my hams as well okay and why do you prefer the wet over the dry in those cases um with the bacon i use a, uh, a technique called equilibrium balance 
And so what you're doing is you're starting with a pork belly that you, you've weighed it out so you know exactly how many grams that pork belly weighs. And there's an online calculator. You plug in the weight of the uh, pork belly and the calculator is going to tell you how much salt, how much sugar, how much water, and how much uh, curing salt you're going to need to add. And then you add your seasonings along with, you know, I, I'll do granulated uh, onion, garlic, smoked paprika, uh, some chili powder, and it turns out wonderful. But the reason I use the equilibrium balance method is you can't oversalt the bacon. It'll only absorb so much salt. And after that, it's just not going to absorb anymore. So with other methods, you can oversalt the bacon. And once it's really overly, overly salty, you're kind of stuck with it. So with the EQ is what we call it, EQ uh, method, we'll go for seven to 10 days in, in heavy two-gallon bags. And we'll get all the, the moisture, or excuse me, the uh, air pockets out. And every day we'll flip that bag so we're ensuring that we're coating the bacon on both sides all the time and keeping it moist. And then after seven to day, 10 days, we'll take that bacon out. We'll run it under water and kind of just uh, wipe it down with your hands because you've got extra herbs and things like that. So you rinse it all off. You pat it dry. And then you put it on a like a cooling rack, like a cookie rack and then you put it back in your refrigerator uh i'll keep it in the fridge for yeah, maybe 12 hours and what that does is it creates a thin skin over the pork belly they call it helical and i could pronounce that incorrectly i've heard it pronounced different ways but basically it creates this little skin over the top of the bacon and that skin allows uh smoke to adhere to your bacon when you put it in your smoker. So to jump ahead, what we've done is the, the bacon's all ready to go. We put it in, into the smoker and we'll smoke it till it, it gets to be 100 and I think it's 155 degrees. And I'll do maybe three editions of hickory or applewood smoke to get a nice flavor going on with that bacon. And once it's done, then I'll pull it out of the smoker I'll pat it dry again. Uh, there's some residual fat that might have pooled up. So I'll pat it dry and then I'll put it back in the fridge on that same rack. So again, it gets firmed up. Uh, it'll drip off any excess fat. And then the following day, the last process is I'll get my slicer out and go ahead and slice the bacon. It's so good. So good. So good. And then yeah. you fry it again, right? Because I know this confused me so much when we started. I was like, wait, am I cooking it twice? I'm smoking it once I'm cooking it. But you, you good smoke. point. So it is not yeah. cooked all the way. Okay. Uh it, yeah. So you are final cooking it in the frying pan or in the oven. Yeah. Uh, and you can also cold smoke bacon. And that's a different technique altogether. So basically what you're doing is you have to have cold temperatures outdoors. Um, so great wintertime project. And you're using a smoke generator that is attached to your, uh, say your electric smoker, and it will allow cold smoke to enter and basically encompass the bacon without heating the bacon at all. And it provides a, uh, a more intense smokiness. Um, okay. Where we used to live in Northern California near Lake Tahoe, we would rarely get cold enough to 
feel really comfortable about cold smoking, but we've moved to Idaho and we get plenty cold enough. So uh, yes, yes. I'll try my hand at that. You, you've got a great place to be for cold smoke. That's one thing I can do is cold smoke. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. So if someone doesn't have a smoker, are they out of luck with homemade bacon or is there anything they can no. do to kind of limp along? You can. Uh, so if you have a charcoal barbecue, you'll want to have a, a very low fire. It just is as cool as you can make it. And look on Amazon or some of these outfits that sell smoking and, and curing supplies. They'll sell a little tube-like device that you can stuff some uh, applewood pellets or hickory pellets in there. So you can generate smoke from that and you can create bacon that way. And I, I, that's how, excuse me, actually how I started. And after I did the first time, it's like, I need a smoker. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. going to be hooked. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, okay. And again, so, the great thing about, oh. uh, I was just going to say the great thing about making your own bacon, you're in control of uh, your, your flavors, uh, your additives. You don't need food colorings and MSG to make bacon. Definitely. Definitely. Now, I know when we're doing homemade bacon, like getting a whole pork belly is the yep. best bet. Um, and I'm, I'm asking this because this happened to me once and I'm guessing there's somebody listening who might be in the same boat. So I got my, or we took our pigs to the butcher. I said, I want, I don't, don't cure it. I want to cure it myself. And so they mm -hmm. sent me home uncured sliced pork belly. Oh, oh no. It was very, it was a sad day. But so I tried, that was a sad like, day. I, I tried to cure it. It didn't really work. Like if, if that happens to someone else, do you just, what would you suggest? You're kind of out of luck. You really are. Uh, that's unfortunate. That's a heartbreaker. Yes. Um, yeah, when uh, we, we raised pigs and we wouldn't do the butchering ourselves, but we'd send it off to the butcher and we, like you, don't cure my meats. <laughs> don't smoke my meats. I'll take care of all that. Uh, all you need to do is cut my hams into a manageable size, maybe four to six pounds a piece, and cut, cut the pork belly in half. So, you know, with a uh, one you're getting 20, 30 pounds of, of pork belly, which is a good amount of bacon. Um, so yeah, take, take control of it yourself. The first pigs we, we had, we had uh, the butcher, who a very good butcher, but we didn't like any of the smoked cured stuff. So we probably had 60 pounds of things we just didn't like. That's a bummer. So That's a big bummer. yeah, I think I'd rather be the control freak and do it myself. Totally. I know. I kind of feel like that too. And they're like, you what? You what? You want it uncured? Like, I know I'm probably yeah. the only client saying this. Just right. what I say. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, and if there's people out there that have their own, let's say they have pigs right now, or they're going to be getting their own pigs, and you know the butcher that you think you're going to use, see if they will sell you some bacon or some ham and try it, because you don't want to end up with a freezer full of stuff you just don't like. Yeah. Good, good suggestion. I also know some will use like the MSG in their sausages or their things in some walks. Right. Good, to, yeah, good to know that ahead of time. So you don't have the heartbreak when you get it home and it's like, you know, there it is on the package. Exactly. And you know, that's another rabbit hole and it's not really meat preservation, but it is meat preparation. And I mean, if you're going to the efforts of dehydrating and dry curing and, and wet curing, you might as well try your hand at making some sausage. It's not difficult to make if you have a grinder. Uh, there's a lot of great recipes out there. I'm happy to share all the recipes I have. Uh, it's easy to do. 
And you can make bulk sausage, like sweet Italian sausage that you can toss into your spaghetti sauce. Uh, or you can do link sausage, as long as you have a sausage, sausage pepper. Uh, it's not difficult to do. It's just a little time. Consuming. Yeah, because that's not something that folks would have to cure. They would just grind no, it and mix it and stuff it. Or not stuff exactly. it. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and if somebody wants to look, go, go to the grocery store and look at, uh, say, a pack of the sweet Italian sausage and check out all the ingredients. And if you can't pronounce those ingredients, you know they're not very good. Yeah, and those generally, it's especially standard grocery store cured meats like that have all kinds of creative things in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is that? Why did you yeah. put that in there? Right. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, so speaking of ingredients, here's the million-dollar question. Do you need to use nitrates for bacon? Because I've seen ah. recipes go either way, both ways. What do you think? I use nitrates. Um, you can, there's a lot of bacon on the market that uh, say nitrate free, and that's actually not quite correct. They're using uh, celery, uh, celery seed, celery salt, uh, mm -hmm. which is loaded. Celery is loaded with nitrate. So the challenge is, is that you don't, if you're using the celery version, you don't really know exactly how much nitrate you're putting into the, uh, say, the bacon. So there's that concern. Whereas if I'm using curing uh, uh, salt number one, I know exactly how many grams I need to ensure that I don't have too little or too much. Um, there are other people that claim that they have a nitrate-free way of doing it, nitrate, nitrate. Um, I haven't seen one that I feel 100% confident in. And again, I look at uh, the benefits of ensuring that we're, I don't give anybody botulism at the house. <laughs> yes. Hey, dad's great. Exactly. Thanks for to the hospital. So uh, what, what, did, what do you think? Um, have you found anything out there that you feel comfortable with? Um, you know, the more I've learned, like, I, I think like a lot of people initially, I read a lot of things on the internet and I had this belief that all nitrates were bad, nitrate, nitrate, whatever, you know, like horrible, the devil, it's like, you always have to avoid them. And then I started to, to read more. And like you said, I, mm -hmm. I started to understand some of the uncured things, like the cell results were actually still nitrates. They're just a different, yeah. you know, and we have those and they occur in vegetables and you right. know, it's really not some of the studies, at least the ones I've read that were that demonized them initially were kind of mm -hmm. taken out of context. So as I've learned more, and I've also learned more about botulism, my thought has been, you know, I don't feel like the nitrates are as bad in proper quantities and we're not eating bologna every day, you know? Right. And we're, I don't know. I just, I'm not as concerned about them as I was, especially in home cured foods, which we're eating, you know, fairly sparingly. It's not like we have tons and tons of them. So that was my conclusion. Uh -huh. What are, is that? As far as when someone comes to you with nitrate concerns, what do you say? Yeah, okay. uh, I'm, I'm right in line with you. Uh, our initial study was like, wow, this sounds pretty sensationally bad. And then after doing some you know, more in-depth study, it's like, okay, uh, do you want to have, uh, have that every day? No, you don't. Um, but again, in moderation. There is, uh, this is a good source for your listeners. There's a website called uh, Eat curedmeat.com and he has an online class that you can take it's an inexpensive class and i think there's like 23 videos one of the videos that he has is about making um, 
nitrate-free bacon. So yeah, somebody's super concerned about it, that might be an avenue to look at. And he's got some pretty good videos or it, written information on his site as well. So that might be something. But yeah, for me, I'm I'm not too bashful about it. I'm just extremely anal about making sure I'm getting the right quantities. Same. I'm always yeah, weighing and yeah, measuring really Yeah. Quickly. So um, I've taught a lot of classes uh, teaching charcuterie over the years. And uh, it's fun because we get a small group. We always limit it to four people because we've got, uh, well, total of five of us in the kitchen and it's all hands on. And I know I'll get people get frustrated. They're weighing out all the ingredients and look, this is close. Now let's make sure it's correct. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just follow the rules. Could you speak to kind of the mechanisms of botulism for a minute? Just so, cause I know I've talked about it a lot on the podcast in terms of like canning, but in case somebody didn't listen to those episodes and they're just like, I don't even know what the big deal is. Why can't I just skip it? Like, could you explain a little bit why, why we are measuring? I'm not a measurer with other things, but I measure with this sort of thing. Yeah. So, and I'm no expert with, with botulism, thankfully. And as a home canner of uh, well over 30 years, uh, I've not made anybody sick. And, uh, so I do know that, uh, you can make somebody terribly sick with botulism and it's not something that you're going to treat at home. You're going to need medical attention to do so. Uh, you can't look at say a, a piece of bacon or salami and go, Oh, that's botulism. Uh, it's, uh, it's minute. It's, you know, I guess microscopic It's hidden. So I wish I could give you a better definitive, uh, definitive answer to that but it's really not my expertise. Sure. Yeah. Um, but it is, and that's why I tell people it is a big deal. It's not like a, like a stomach ache or it's not going to be green with botulism mold. Like it's invisible right. and it's, that's why you just don't, you just don't mess around with it. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, the other day I had uh, some canned corn that I uh, canned last summer and you know, you always do the lid check before you open everything up. The dimple is still down. Everything's great. I unscrew the lid. And I pull up on the top just to make sure that it's nice and tight. And it came right up. Mm. And that's the first time I've ever had that with the dimple still down. Yeah. So, yeah. again, that could have been a problem for the family where, okay, we're going to the emergency room. Yeah, we want to avoid that. It is best to avoid that. Yeah, it is recommended yeah. to just not have to, not have to go there. It's better. Right. Okay. Um, Okay, awesome. You know, the other thing with wet curing is uh, hams, and it's a slightly different process. It's a little less anal. Uh, you're going to use a food-grade bucket. You're still going to use sugars and salts and curing salt, um, some pickling spices, which sounds strange, but that's how you do it. And uh, you'll soak the ham in the water solution. And of course, it's in a small refrigerator. Let's say a dorm room refrigerator is perfect for this kind of thing. You make sure the ham is completely submerged in the liquid. And what I do is I'll put a plate on top of the ham and put something to weight it down to ensure that the ham is completely submerged. And depending upon the weight, again, it's going to, the ham's going to uh, cure for seven to 10 days. And then you pull it out, rinse it nicely and toss it in the smoker, let it do its thing. And you can either smoke it until it's completed, or you can, like what I typically do, is I'll smoke it to a certain doneness and then uh, package it, freeze it, 
and then just reheat it in the oven and make sure it comes up to uh, the proper temperature. I've done a similar um, thing with hams even before we had a smoker, but it's, it's unreal. Like I didn't even know ham was supposed to taste like that. It's so much better. And we'll have we'll sort of to friends and they're like, what is this? And I'm like, it's ham. Well, this is, doesn't taste like ham I've ever had. I'm like, cause grocery store ham's weird and spongy and they inject it with things. And it's, well, they, yeah, yeah, they inject it with all this garbage. Yeah. So it doesn't, kind of, it isn't mushy. Uh, it's good stuff. So it is. yeah, and it's easy to do. So you if you want to go ahead, sorry. Oh, I just wanted to mention it, uh, regarding pork bellies, your butcher should be able to uh, find pork bellies for you. Costco oftentimes has pork bellies these days. Uh, green ham, that's an uncured ham. They're a little harder to get, but if you go to your specialty uh, butcher, you should be able to uh, be able to get some uh, ordered in for you. Have you ever tried prosciutto? Yes. Have you ever done a prosciutto? What's your method for that? Okay, I have... Uh, I have eaten much, <laughs> a whole lot of prosciutto. I have not made prosciutto. Uh, so, you know, that's a whole loin. It's going to take a good deal of time. And that's ideal for a, uh, uh, a chamber in which you're preserving meat, you're controlling temperature and humidity. So uh, I've opted to not go to that added expense. So when I'm dying for prosciutto, I'll just go by. Yeah. And I asked that because I have this very embarrassing story that I, I don't think I've ever told oh, on the oh. podcast. With. Uh oh, and, well, nobody's uh, listening right now. It's no okay. Listening, so it's fine. I'm sure you won't tell anyone. <laughs> I won't tell a soul. <laughs> so we had butchered a pig and I had asked the butcher just to give me the, the leg of ham or whatever. And so they gave me the leg of ham. It was like ginormous, okay. huge. But yeah, huge. And so I followed a tutorial on YouTube on how to remove the H bone, which is like the big joint up in there. Cause it, they said yep. you needed to get that out to help the cure, like not be able to penetrate and not have botulism right. potential. So I like, that was a ordeal. I was in the kitchen with knives and it, there was like, it was, there was yeah. um, <laughs> I see you still have all your fingers. I have so all the fingers. Good. My husband walked in. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> a pig on the kitchen counter. Um, right. So I got that out and then I can't remember which, where I found the directions. But I basically, it was directions without curing salt. So they're like, just put a bunch of salt on it and put it in the refrigerator for a while and then hang it in your, you know, hang it in the basement. Yeah, and so I did, and I hung it, like I left it in the fridge and dry, dry cured with just table salt, like, you know, sea salt. It wasn't nitrates. Mm -hmm. And then I, um, I, I think I covered it with lard and then wrapped it in cheesecloth and hung it in our basement, which is not a, it's just like an unfinished basement. It's not a a root cellar. Sure. And then for a year, I left it down there and people would like come into our basement and they'd be like, they think I had like a body part. Yeah, like, <laughs> which we, I kind of did have a body part in there. But anyway, yeah. so my anticlimactic into the story is it was a year later and I like kept looking at that thing and I'm like, I am way too scared to eat that. Yeah. So I tossed it and it was probably wise, but I still feel bad that I, yeah. <laughs> that I threw it away. Yeah. So we we never want to waste meat, but yeah, I don't want to get sick either. I also, yeah, that's why I, I, I think it's better to err on the side of caution and follow those recipes that, you know, yep. aren't kind of willy nilly flying by the seat of your pants like I did. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, so that's my prosciutto story. Your kitchen probably looked like a crime scene as you're cutting out the bone. It did. It was quite, quite messy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, you know, I had like goop all over my laptop because I kept pausing the video with my meaty fingers and it was, it was a great. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, that made for a great podcast episode. Yeah, for sure. 
<laughs> people love those stories when you completely <laughs> yeah. just bomb it. That's the best. Exactly. So, um, okay. So we have dry curing. What curing is that? Is that the extent or do you have anything else? Uh, we talk about like? salt curing. You know, the, the last method, and it's actually kind of a combination of two, uh, is smoking. And if we think about, uh, we can see some movie with uh, Native Americans. They've caught all this uh, fish and they have drying racks around, uh, centered around a fire, a low going fire, and it's a smoky fire. Uh, so that method, you're dehydrating the fish in that case because you have that low fire. And then in conjunction with that, you're using that smoke, which uh, has some antimicrobial uh, qualities to it. It also keeps flies away, which is great. So is it a technique that we would use today? Probably not. There's other, I think, better, safer methods. But again, it's one of the ancient ways that if, as long as we remember how to do it and it's there, if for some reason we needed to do something different, we could. Mm-hmm. So what, you, like, let's say you have a, a regular modern smoker. Would you, mm-hmm. if you were going to smoke, let's say you had fish, and I, I this is, might be a silly question. I've not used a smoker much for pr- preservation. I've just used it for like making brisket for barbecue. You know, could yeah. we could we use a smoker to preserve the fish, or would we still need to be like refrigerating them after freezing them after doing those other backup methods? Yes, <laughs> yeah. both ways. Uh, so if you salt cured your, let's say, a, a fillet of salmon, and then you cold smoked it then you would have something that would be preserved. Uh, If you hot smoked it, then it wouldn't be uh, preserved to the way that you would want it to be done. So, uh, you know, the Scandinavians would take a filet of salmon and pack it full of salt for 24 hours. Oh, and they would include dill as a flavoring. Pack it full of salt, and then after 24 hours, rinse it completely and slice it very thin and it was theoretically safe to eat, though it wouldn't really be shelf stable. But it was, it had gotten to that point where it was safe to eat, where theoretically you weren't going to get sick from it. But okay. uh, I've never smoked fish. Um, you know, where we were, we didn't live near the ocean. So uh, getting great fresh fish was kind of hard. And here in Idaho, yeah, Wyoming, Same. yeah. It's, it's a long very, way away. Very low experience with fish. Oh, any seafood of any kind. Yeah. 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 And I'm picky. It, it, it's got to be really fresh. Otherwise, it's not that great. For sure. For sure. Yeah. What, what kind of smoker do you have? Do you have a homemade one or do you have a, a brand that you bought? Um, I have a uh, an electric smoker built by Masterbuilt. And it's a good smoker. Uh, you can find them all over the place. Even the big box stores like Home Depot and Lowe's. They're not terribly expensive, and uh, they're really easy to use. The only uh, thing I would recommend getting in addition to the smoker is a means of having a uh, temperature probe in the meat that you're smoking and have it either wirelessly connect, like a Bluetooth, or via a wire to a temperature sensor so you can see what the internal temperature of the meat is. Because as the adage goes, if you're uh, if you're looking inside the smoker, you're cracking the door open. You're not cooking, uh, and you can lose ten degrees like 
just like that, and it slows down your whole process. So get the remote uh, temperature sensor, meat probe, and you'll be happy you did. For sure. And of course, you can get smoking chips, the apple, cherry, um, hickory. You know, there's all kinds of different uh, types of woods that you can smoke with. The fruit-based, uh, the fruit-based bark like apple and cherry uh, are wonderful for pork. And mesquite is uh, is a really powerful uh, smoke, and you want to use that very carefully because otherwise you've got something that you're gonna go, oh, I can't even eat this. Okay, yeah, good point. Good point. Okay. Sorry, I keep waving. I know you guys, the podcast listeners can't see it's the flies. I'm just I like, know, as Derek's talking, it feels looks I'm like just I'm, gonna wave like, back. I'm making all kinds of sign language. Like, it's the flies. They're Why is she waving? Yeah. <laughs> Why is she waving? Oh, fly season. Um, yeah. Well, Derek, this time has flown by. Holy moly. Um, any last words of wisdom or advice as we wrap up for folks who are looking at, you know, maybe they're doing canning already, they're dabbling these other forms of preservation, but meat is their, you know, next frontier. What what advice would you give them? Well, I would say, uh, don't be afraid of curing meat or preserving meat. Uh, just get a little bit of information behind you. And if someone needs help, uh, they can email me at the smiley farm at gmail.com. Um, I can provide a, a wealth of knowledge and I have no problem in doing that as a, a gift to your listeners. So choose something that you want to dive into and we'll help you get going. That is it's a lot of fun. Fine. Thank you so much. Is you, know, you know what's cool? Oh, go ahead. I just want to say, you know what's cool? Uh, we're relatively new in Idaho and we've met uh, new friends. We've been here 15 months. And uh, instead of handing out a business card or something like that, I hand out bacon. Can it get any better than that? No, it cannot. Exactly. It's the best. <laughs> we have all kinds of friends now. Right. <laughs> um, I love it. Is there anywhere people can find you online or is this that email the best place to? Um, we also have a Facebook page called The Smiley Farm. Uh, and So www.facebook.com, The Smiley Farm. And um, so we have left the homestead. We retired after 25 years. And we still do fun stuff, though. Now, we're, I'm still curing meats. We're still canning. We're, we'll, we'll probably not stop doing any of that. So, uh, yeah, look us up. Awesome. And I think that's a great inspiration that you don't, even if you're not on a farm, you can still do all of this stuff and still have such yeah. a firsthand um, account, account, firsthand something <laughs> on your, well, you know, your food. A, for us, it's you're a, still involved yeah. in your food. Yeah. Yep. For us, it's a lifestyle choice. Absolutely. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I learned a ton. I have been craving, you know, have to be able to have a conversation like this with someone who's been there, done that. And this, this was fantastic. So thank you so much for your Well, I've enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening along, my friend. I hope you enjoyed that episode and got as much out of it as I did. And hey, if you're feeling inspired to start preserving more food after listening to all these amazing interviews on the podcast this season... My Canning Made Easy program is one of the very best places to start. I created this course several years ago when I realized that a ton of people were getting stuck with canning processes and canning safety methods because there's just so much information online and it can feel super overwhelming. And I wanted to just make this process simple because canning does not have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be scary or uncertain. 
it can be something you do just while you're in the kitchen working on other things sometimes. It doesn't have to be an ordeal. And so I created this program of videos, eBooks, and charts that has since allowed thousands of you to learn how to can without the stress. And this year, I'm actually adding something extra special to the program. I'm gonna be sending anyone who joins the program a box, an actual physical box from my homestead to yours of some of my favorite canning accessories. I'm gonna be throwing in a couple of my favorite reusable canning lids, you know, so the canning lid shortage just doesn't have to be a concern. I'll send you a sample of my favorite sea salt that I use for all of my preserving, a flip top to convert your mason jar into all sorts of handy pantry storage, and probably my favorite part of all is my very much requested old-fashioned on-purpose kitchen towel. You may have seen it hanging in my kitchen in some videos or photos. It has the old-fashioned on-purpose manifesto on it. A ton of people have messaged me after seeing photos and said, Jill, where do I get the towel? And we finally got a batch of them printed up and we'll be tucking that into your little goodie box whenever you join the course. So to check out the course, all that's offered and see what's in my little box that I'll be sending you, just head on over to learnhowtocan.com to have a look.